Hello, today we're talking with Dave Strayer, and we're talking with him as he's a co-author on this paper by Carrico et al. called Dissolved Oxygen Declines in the Hudson River Associated with the Invasion of the Zebra Mussel. This was published in Environmental Science and Technology in 2000. And we're talking today because I really enjoy this paper. I use it as um, a, a reading and writing assignment for my environmental measurements lab. It's sort of one of the first papers that sophomore and juniors review as a paper and get some thinking. And it really works nicely with my environmental measurements lab because in that lab we go and collect water samples and then we measure them for nutrients. And this paper, when I first read this paper, I, I, I just, I really enjoyed it because it, it has a long time series, a lot of data, and it really, it's, it's hyper-local on the Hudson River, and it really looks at this issue of um, zebra mussel invasion. And so I thought it'd be nice to talk to um, Dave, just to, you know, try to understand the paper more, get a little background, and we can talk about how it all came together. And so that brings us, and so, um, so first, um, Dave, would you like to introduce yourself and give a little background? Um, I'm, I'm Dave Strayer. I'm, a, I'm just retired uh, from the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in New York, where I was a freshwater ecologist. I worked there for, I don't know, 30 years or a little bit more than that. And for most of that time, I was part of a, of a group of five scientists and, and several students and assistants and collaborators who studied the ecology of the Hudson River. Oh, cool. And then, um, okay, so then talking about this paper, um, I like this paper is looking at the zebra mussel invasion within the um, within it. And I, but first, before, let me step back. You're at the Cary Institute, which is sort of located. I always, I'm not going to have exactly right, but I sort of think of you located halfway up the tidal Hudson, and really focused on Hudson River issues. Is that a is that a good summary, or how would you how would you think about like the Cary Institute? Yeah, so we're um, we're about halfway between New York City and Albany in a rural part of the Hudson Valley. Um, we focused on the the Hudson partly because it's really interesting and important and nearby, and partly because about the time the Cary Institute came into being in the uh, early 1980s, the Hudson River Foundation came into being as well, and so there was research money to uh, study the Hudson River. And, you know, scientists study what they're interested in, but they also study what they can find funding for. And so the appearance of the Hudson River Foundation at the same time as the Cary Institute was really a, a fortunate juxtaposition of circumstances. And that's what led our group to the Hudson. No, I know. And it's an amazing because I have I have a lot of friends who work on the Hudson and use Hudson River Foundation money. And it's, I think they've really supported a lot of fantastic research over the years like over the entire length of the river. So yeah, I, I don't know if your students are aware of this, but the, the Hudson is one of the best studied rivers uh, in the world. And in fact, it's about 10 times as much studied in terms of the number of scientific papers that have been published. It's about 10 times as, as well studied as, as the typical American river of its size. And some of that is, is due to its position close to New York City. Some of it's due to the... Um, the history of environmental conflicts on the Hudson, like the Storm King case. And then some of it is due to the existence of the Hudson River Foundation. Yeah, yeah it's funny. In, 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 my, in the class, we always, um, that, that, I think that's what makes the Hudson beautiful, because we end up always looking at like 
looking a little bit at the art and the history, there's so many aspects you can pull together just even while you're studying the science. So, yeah, I think it's 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 kind of revealing that when you ask people from Eastern New York where they live, they very often say the Hudson River Valley. It's how they identify the, the region. It's that important. Yeah. So, so then talking, so getting back to this study, how did you, because I, I do some time series work and you, in here, you have a beautiful, you have beautiful time series data. How, how did you get started on that and doing the measurements? Because it seems like that's sort of like a, before we even talk to, talk about zebra muscle and that, it seems like thinking about time series and now, like, collecting all that data is difficult. And like, how did it begin and how did you keep it up? That's a good question. So um, this, I have to say right at the beginning, this was not planned as a long-term study of zebra mussel effects on dissolved oxygen in Hudson. It developed into that. My four colleagues started working on the Hudson River in the late 1980s, and they were interested in the workings of the lower food web, phytoplankton production, organic matter coming in from the watershed, bacterial use of that uh, that, that material that was coming into the river, zooplankton dynamics, those sorts of things. They want to know how the river worked. And so they intended to study the river for, I don't know, maybe three years. And as part of that study, they started measuring dissolved oxygen. It's a, it's a, a key variable in aquatic ecosystems. It both reflects the activity of the, of the ecosystem you can tell something about the ecosystem from the dissolved oxygen record, but it also determines the suitability of the habitat for various kinds of species and various kinds of biogeochemical processes. So if you know what, how much dissolved oxygen is in the water, you know what kind of organisms can live there, and you know what kind of processes might be occurring in, in that body of water. So that's how the study started, uh, was as a short-term study focused on the dynamics of the lower food web. Oh, interesting. Okay, and then um, oh no, that's interesting because right, because as I was saying, like I do some time series work, and it, it's it's hard because keeping that focus going is is tough. To, you know, you're trying to get out there week after week and all that. It's, I think people always underestimate how hard time series work is. Right. Yeah, and 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 no funder wants to write you a check to go out every week for the next thirty <laughs> years and measure anything. And um, so what happened with this was. About the time that those initial studies of food, the lower food web were winding up in the late 1980s, we got word from the Great Lakes that zebra mussels had appeared um, in the Great Lakes and were causing massive changes to the Great Lakes. Well, that's not interesting to us. And so we sat down and made some models about would zebra mussels live in the Hudson River? How long might it take for them to arrive? How many might live in the river when they got here? And what might their effects be? And we were really fortunate because my colleague, actually Nina Caraco, the author of the, the lead author of the paper we're talking about this morning, she had a working model of phytoplankton dynamics in the river. So years before zebra mussels appeared in the Hudson, we put zebra mussels into a model of the Hudson River to test whether they would have changed the river. And the results of that exercise suggested that yes, Zebra mussels would appear soon in the Hudson River. We would have large numbers of them. They would affect the river. They had the potential to have large effects on the river. 
and our sampling stations were in a good place to detect those effects. So once we had done those exercises, we went back to our funder, the Hudson River Foundation, and said, look, you know, something very important and exciting is likely to happen in the river in the next couple of years. We would like to continue to track the river for another few years to, 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 to see that. And they bid on that. They thought that was a good idea, and they funded us for another three years. And you've talked earlier about this being a long-term study. It's been funded one to five years at a time, patched together <laughs> over a course of, uh, you know, I guess about 30 years now. Oh, my gosh. Okay, okay. That's, in, that's impressive. Because, yeah, no, that, that's, that's very impressive. So okay. we've, been, we've been both persistent and lucky. Yeah, I think that's I think that's how it always works out with with these things, though, right? It's they're not easy, they're hard, but you you need that, right? You need you need both persistence and luck to be able to pull them off. So yes, okay, so fantastic. So then you were measuring dissolved oxygen, and it's funny because in our class we measure dissolved oxygen. We do um, we'll go out on the boat and we'll measure um. We we do a we do a CTD with a rosette, and we get our dissolved oxygen yeah. profiles of the river, and then we also collect um samples for Winkler and we don't we don't get to measure our Winkler for like a month and a half later just because of how the class works out and so we always have trouble getting our Winklers and our probe to to um line up very nicely right because we don't have that many samples yeah. and it's right they're, they're hard they're, they're hard like dissolved oxygen measurements are also they're a little bit tricky and the probes are, I think are never quite happy so I was, um, that's what I'm saying. Like the one thing I was always, I was always impressed because you have this, you, you all, you did it nicely. You have nice comparison between your YSI and the probe and you're able to get lots of high quality data. Yes. The, my colleagues in particular, uh, Nina and John and, and, uh, Stuart and Mike Pace yeah. are all really fastidious about, uh, about data and about measurements. And so it's interesting you measure Winkler. Uh, you mentioned Winkler because we have done both Winklers and uh, yeah. micro Winklers and 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 probe measure, measurements of oxygen on the river. And when we try out a new method, it's always tested extensively to make sure <laughs> that we are getting numbers that we can trust. We, you know, how it goes. Scientists are very suspicious of of any 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 data, right? Are you sure that's right? Did you did you run controls? Did you run blanks? Is there a new membrane on the probe? You know, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, it's so true. And I think, and I think especially because like you get fooled sometimes because pH measurements are so easy. So sometimes I think the students get fooled when they see a probe. It's all going to go as smooth as like pH. But you know, it's it's. To get good probe measurements for dissolved oxygen, you have to be you have to treat your probes really nicely. Yes. Right. right, and I think that's a good, that's another good lesson for like for my students on, you know, on doing science. Yes, yes, no, it's it's an interesting problem because you need to uh, if you get something, especially if you get something that's a little out of uh, out of the ordinary, yeah. you're suspicious of it. Yeah. But you can't throw it out. You have to check to see whether it's uh, whether it's tr true or not. Yeah. You you probably know the famous case of the Antarctic ozone hole where they threw out the data showing that the ozone hole was developing for several years because <laughs> the data were out of range, and you know they were being sampled remotely by a probe basically. Yeah. 
And it was so as a result, the discovery of the ozone hole was delayed several years until somebody said, wait a second, those numbers aren't bad. There's really a catastrophic hole in the ozone over Antarctica. So it's a it's a fine line. Yep. No, no, it's totally true. And I think it's funny when we when I when we teach this class, that's one of the benefits of using like the river samples in the class is because um, every year something there's a outlier or maybe yeah. a sample like there's a real outlier or a sample goes bad and we have to you know we have to yeah. sit there and think about it right whereas if you just make up fake samples in a, the lab you don't you, you know you don't get that learning process no that's that's exactly right and it's an important <clears throat> it's an important part of science yeah and even with us because like the same thing even like going out on the boat to get the samples it's one of the first times the students do that so it's like and something always goes wrong in the boat right like no matter how yeah. Right, you, I'm sure you, there's. I'm sure from this looking at all the samples, there there must have been some disasters of days where you're trying to just right survive the day. And, and engines fail, yeah. uh, bow trailers fail, winches fail, uh, and yes, that's why I say persistent. We've had the other people on our group. Plus, we've had a couple long-term assistants who've taken a lot of the samples, and we have people in the auto shop who take care of the truck and the boat. Yeah. And all of those people are are dedicated and persistent. Yeah. Uh, it, it would have been easy sometimes to say, well, the truck's broken. We're not going to go out. But somebody figured out how to go out. Yep. yep. No, no, I, I agree 100 percent. OK, so then to talk about the results, you ended up having some right. You, it sounds like you made a prediction. You actually have, have some beautiful results here with the chlorophyll and the dissolved oxygen. Right. With the with the. Um, Right, the dissolved oxygen changed. Right, you had this beautiful change in the dissolved oxygen pretty much after '92. Yes, and you know I should stress again, this wasn't a plan. This was not a planned result. So I, I'm going to give you a little digression here, which you're going to edit out if you have to. But you know, <laughs> I won't edit it out. I enjoy this. I this is what I enjoy hearing about. Where this paper came from is that I I said our group had predicted we were going to get lots of zebra mussels in the river soon. So they turned up in 91, and by the end of 92, we had lots of mussels. And the initial paper describing this outbreak of mussels in the river, we published in 1996. And as part of a analysis as to how big the population was, we estimated its biomass and, and its respiration. And the respiration rate was huge. Uh, normally, when we think of what controls oxygen dynamics in an aquatic ecosystem, we're thinking of microbial processes like phytoplankton production and bacterial respiration or physical processes like exchange with the atmosphere. We don't normally think that animal respiration is large enough to have any measurable influence on oxygen. But in 1996, we, we, we came up with this estimate of respiration it was so large that we thought, gosh, this, this could really affect the oxygen budget of the river. So then Nina went back and looked at the oxygen record. It was the kind of backwards. So she went back and looked at the uh, oxygen record to see if, if, you know, Strayer's got this crazy idea about zebra muscle respiration. <laughs> it should have been large enough to drop oxygen in the river. Let's humor him and look. Yeah. And what she found was oxygen fell quite a lot. It coincident with the arrival of zebra mussels in the river. And then she, Nina's a really good modeler. 
and she constructed a physical budget for the oxygen dynamic uh, for the oxygen in Hudson River, which is in this paper, right? Yeah. And one of the interesting results of that is if you put zebra mussel respiration into that model, it suggests that oxygen would have fallen by twice as much as the, what we observed. It, I think her model said something like it should have fallen by two parts per million, and we observed a decline of about one part per million. So what's going on with that? So that's a secondary problem that appeared in the course of this analysis that we didn't anticipate. And the answer that's given in this paper, and I think it's likely right, yeah. is that the water was a little bit clearer, and so that, fire, uh, that, so that uh, macrophyte plants production, the oxygen production by submerged plants, increased a little bit because the oxygen was, you know, let me try this again. Yeah. Oxygen production by submerged plants was responsible for that increase yeah. in oxygen because the water was a little bit clearer as a result of zebra mussel consumption of phytoplankton. So what happened was zebra mussels were breathing down the oxygen in the river, but they're also making the water a little bit clearer, which allowed more plant photosynthesis in the river to partly compensate for that drop in oxygen. So you get two parts per million oxygen drop from the zebra mussels, one part per million oxygen gain from the plant production, plant photosynthesis, resulting in the net one part per million decline, which is what we observed. So this was, a, in a way, a very roundabout uh, analysis, but also very typical in that, you know, scientists kind of go where the data lead them. No, and I thought that was, it was funny. The first time I read the paper, I, I missed that subtlety. The once I read it the second time, it was like, you realize how, right, how beautiful a conclusion that is, right? The, um, right, they, they have those two parts that are interacting. And, and you wouldn't have picked it up if, if Nina hadn't done the, the physical budget, right? Yep. I mean, if you'd just done a time series analysis, you would have said, uh, oh, the oxygen fell by a part per million. Yeah when zebra mussels came into the river, it must be zebra mussel respiration causing it. And you would have missed the nuance of the, yeah. of the plant response without going through that rigorous physical model that Nina did. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. And that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful result. And that's good because that also, that gets my students think, I get, for the students, I think that's a tougher part of the paper, trying to think about that modeling. And so it's good we try to discuss it. You don't really have to... Um, put those details together in a model, which is a beautiful result. Well, we yeah, actually just, I mean, yeah. the, the model lets you go to a quantitative analysis from a qualitative one. The first analysis you might do is, does oxygen drop when zebra mussels come into the river? That's a qualitative yeah. result. The answer is either yes or no. But but to get to how much and, and whether zebra mussels are a sufficient explanation for the drop, you really have to go to this quantitative analysis. Yep. No, no, and it does it beautifully, and it's like, when you read the paper, it does it nicely because it goes through all these alternative explanations, and it it sort of dismisses which ones aren't possible, so it's a, even for learning how to structure papers, it's a, it's nice that way in the discussion because it really shows how you think about, right, how you think about data and alternative explanations. Yep. So, yeah, well, you just answered like five of my questions. Okay. <laughs> which is beautiful. That's exactly, that was a, that was a fantastic, um description of the model so um so do you think here's i'm gonna go move to a little bit do you think this paper is sort of holding up over time as far as i know 
it is holding up over time in the sense that people are still reading and citing this paper and no one has published a paper that's contrary to its conclusions to say, oh, well, no, it, it, Caraco et al. are wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's not zebra mussels. It's not the submerged vegetation. Yeah. Um, so as far as I know, it's, it's, it's held up pretty well. And as I said, people continue to use the paper, which isn't bad for an 18-year-old paper. No, no, I, I totally agree. It's funny. Sometimes it is 18 years old. So sometimes with, when I'm reading with the students, they'll, like, you know, the, the figures, you know, like how you do maps now has changed and stuff. So a couple of the figures are. Yes. You know what I mean? But it doesn't, it doesn't change any of the results, which is really nice. But I think the, re, right, the results are holding up beautifully over time. So, and then have you, I haven't been following much of the like, zebra mussel issues in the river lately. Are there, have things changed at all or is it, or do you yes. know? Things have changed in an interesting way. Uh, the river is still full of zebra mussels. There are about as many zebra mussels in the river as there were in the early 90s. I mean, statistically, there's no change. And in fact, there's no change. What's happened, though, is that uh, there's a lot more predation on the zebra mussels than there, were, than there was in the early years of the invasion. So the animals are younger and smaller than they used to be. So the total amount of zebra mussel biomass in the river has declined. The total amount of water that zebra mussels filter okay. has declined. And although we haven't done the calculation now, uh, now, now that yeah. I'm talking to you, I'm wondering why we haven't done it. But <laughs> we, we, we've not recalculated respiration, but respiration must have declined because, um, because the animals are so much smaller than they used to be. Yeah. And as a result, uh, oxygen concentrations have risen a little bit in the last few years. So we published a paper in 2014 in bioscience. Yeah. And since about the year 2005, there's been a recovery towards pre-invasion conditions for a lot of variables in the river. So dissolved oxygen has come back up a little bit. Zooplankton populations are nearly where they were before zebra mussels arrived. Uh, and this is very interesting because, as I said, the river is still full of zebra mussels. Yes. So it shows that the that the dynamics of invasion aren't as simple as uninvaded, then invaded. But there's some time course after the initial invasion that plays out. So we're still measuring. Uh, we're still taking samples in the Hudson. We're still going out every couple weeks and getting samples. And we're still tracking this invasion whose dynamics have not yet played out. It hasn't settled down yet. And it's been uh, 26 years since the uh, zebra mussel population broke out and it became a dominant part of the ecosystem. And this is a general interesting and unsolved problem in ecology today, which is what are the long-term effects of species invasions? And we're trying to contribute to the solution of that. Oh, that, that, that's that's really interesting. So as we start to wrap up, do you, um, maybe just do you have any anything you want like any advice or something to say for the students? This is like their first lab class about you know field work, lab or something. Gee, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, I mean, the one the one thing this study has has 
told us, I mean, theory is really, theory and concepts are really important in guiding science, but in some sense, data are Trump. Yeah. And, and, and so we had ideas about how the Hudson ought to work or did work, should work, yeah. was going to work. And in some cases we were right. And in a lot of cases we were wrong. And so no matter how beautiful the theory or concept is, you really have to get out and, and measure the, the ecosystem or whatever it is that you're studying to, to test your ideas. And as I said, some of our ideas, we've, we've been very pleased to have been right. In other cases, we're still scratching our heads about what's going on in the river. And that's where the next study comes from. That, you know, that's where our group is talking now about what's the next thing we're going to try to measure on the Hudson. And it's, it's driven both by the, our changing ideas about how the river works and by the continuing stream of data that's coming in that's causing us to correct our ideas about how the river works. Fantastic. Well, this is this has been beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with us. And this is going to really add to um to our discussion of the paper. Thank you. My, my pleasure. And I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you're reading the paper.